This evening before I go home, I'm about to hop a plane, fly all the way up to New York and then down to Atlanta and then finally back to West Virginia. I don't know why they do it that way. But I'll arrive home tomorrow at around 1.30. But before I leave any of you, there's one subject that I cannot leave an audience with without sharing. It's the most important subject in all of Scripture. Take your handouts with me in your hand. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, it says the love of Christ does what? Now let's be very clear here. What is it that's controlling us? Love. The fear of hell. Is that what's controlling us? The hope of getting to heaven. Is that what's controlling us? No, something far greater than that. It's the love of God for us. That's controlling us. Having concluded this, that one died for how many? All. Therefore all died. And I want you to notice this. He died for all so that they who live might, notice there's a purpose here, no longer live for who? For themselves. Now I don't want to minimize it. The great centerpiece of the Bible is that Jesus died for you. Amen? But Jesus died for you for a purpose. For a reason. He wanted to accomplish something in you through that death. And what is that purpose according to this? That we would no longer live for who? For ourselves, but for Him who died for us and rose again. Now notice here, one final point in this text. Have you met people who live a life centered only on themselves? Have you met those kind of people? Everything around, the, around us tells us we need to watch out primarily for number one. After all, if you don't look out for yourself, no one else will, we're told. But have you seen how happy people are who only care about themselves? They're not very happy, are they? Where does true happiness come? Where does true fulfillment come? When we begin to live for something greater than ourselves, when we begin to live to help and to bless and to benefit others. But if you're like me, you've tried that and failed miserably. It is impossible for us to reach out and live that kind of love all on our own. We can't do it. The Bible says that by nature we are very self-centered creatures and it really doesn't take the Bible to prove it. Have you looked out on planet earth lately? Are we pretty self-centered? But Jesus came here to give us life and that we might have it how? Do you remember? More abundantly. How many would like to have that more abundant life? Where your life is fulfilling and it's meaningful and it's different. What's the foundation of that? Not living a life centered on yourself, but living a life centered on Him and others around you. How do we accomplish it? Jesus came and died for us to accomplish that. And that's what I want to share with you this evening. How is it that His death changes our focus from ourselves to others? Notice first it says in 1 John 4.19, We what? Love, period. Period. Because he first did what? 
The only reason we have the ability to love anyone, either God or others, is because He first loved us. Anyone here ever had someone be nice to you? Anybody here ever had someone be nice to you? When they're nice to you, it's very simple to understand this. When they're nice to you, what does that make you want to do to them? Be nice back. And why do you want to be nice back? Because they, it's no-brainer, they were first nice to you. When someone's kind to you, does it not awaken in you the desire to reciprocate that kindness? Notice, God understands how we work. Amen? After all, He made us this way. And He knew we were self-centered, but He knew that there was a chance that if He could come to this planet and show us love, that if He could show it in the right quantity, it would be enough in the right quality. It would be enough to awaken in us the desire to change, to no longer live self-centered lives, but to wrap all of our life around the principles of other-centeredness. Notice John 17, no, John 12. It says, now my soul has become troubled. This is Jesus speaking here. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What hour is he about to face? What is he about to go through? His death. He says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this, what's that word? For this purpose, I came to this hour. Notice there are two things here. First, there's Christ's death. And then there's the purpose of his death. And I love this. He says, Father, glorify your... Now, what does that mean? Have you ever noticed how the Bible uses some pretty strange language stuff to sometimes to say stuff that's really should be easier to understand? Anyone ever noticed that before? It's like, what do you mean glorify your name? What does that even mean? Well, in the Hebrew culture, babies weren't named the way children, were, children are named today. Uh, you've heard tonight that we're about to have another child. In November, my wife is going to give birth to a baby boy. And the way it works in our culture today is we have a name picked out when? Most people when? Long before they're born. Matter of fact, before you even know what the sex of the child is, you've got how many names picked out at least? You've got two names picked out. A boy and a girl. Some people go back even as far as my baby's about to be born and we're going to name, give him a name that my wife and I decided on when we were teenagers. Can you believe that? I mean, we've had this name picked out forever. But that's not the way the Hebrews did it. The Hebrews would wait when their baby was born and they would wait a whole week. And after seven days had gone by, on the eighth day, they would give them a name. Do you know why? Because they were watching that baby to figure out what kind of a person that baby was. And then they would name the baby accordingly. You're, there's a story in the Bible about a woman named Abigail. Abigail was married to a man named Nabal. Now, Nabal was not a smart dude. He ticked off King David one day. And David came riding down the plains with his mighty men to wipe out Nabal and the entire family. And Abigail runs out, the story states, and stopped David and said, Please, David, have mercy on your servant Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. 
Do you know what the name Nabal means in that, in that language? It means fool. What did that baby do in the first seven days of his life? Can you imagine the self-image of that human being? Hi, my name's Fool. Dude, that's worse than Herb. Really. When Jesus said, I am going to die for the purpose of revealing your name, Father. What did that mean in that culture? Does God have a name? Does it indicate what he's like? Jesus says, I'm about to die. What shall I say? Save me from this event? No. No, I came to this event for this purpose. Father, show them what you're like. Show them the truth of what kind of a God you really are. Would you like to see this evening before I leave? Would you like to see the clearest revelation of what kind of a person God really is ever given to man? In John 17, it says, O righteous Father, although the world has not, what does it say? The world doesn't know you, God, but I know you, Father. And these that you've given me, they know that you've sent me. I've made your name known to them. All through his ministry he was doing it. And then he says, and I will make it known. Looking at the cross. And notice what he says. He would make it known so that the, what would be the result? The love that you have for me may be where? If we put all of these verses together, what it's simply saying is this. As the Apostle John was meditating one day upon the cross of Christ and all the sacrifice that God had made for on his behalf, the Apostle John was so overcome with emotion, with gratitude, with solemn awe, he picked up his pen and he wrote with his heart being strangely warmed the three most important words in all of Scripture. Looking at the cross... With his heart being stirred, he wrote, truly, God is love. And when we see that, by that love is love awakened. According to Jesus, what was the purpose of his death? To reveal to us God's love in such a way that it would radically change our life. In Acts 4, I want to move quickly. In Acts 4, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever... What does it say? Your hand... And your, what's that word? Purposed, predestined to occur. That's some pretty big words all in a row. But the point I understand from this verse is that Jesus was handed over to Pilate, to the Gentiles, to the Jews. Handed over to humanity. And whatever they were going to do to him, notice it was according to God's, what does it say? Purpose. Whatever, whatever they were going to do, it was what he had purposed for them to do. Look at Acts 2.23. It says, this man delivered over by the predetermined what? Plan and what does it say? For 
knowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now I want you to just consider for a moment what aspect of Jesus' suffering did we as human beings inflict upon Jesus? Was it his mental, psychological, and emotional? Maybe indirectly, but which one were we literally inflicting upon him that day? The nails in his hands, the stripes on his back. We're talking about the physical nature of his suffering. And it's interesting here that even the physical sacrifice of Christ was part of God's what? It was part of his purpose, part of his plan. What, why, what role did the physical suffering play? Was the physical sufferings of Christ needed to save you? According to this, it would seem yes. But be very careful. Why were they needed? Were they needed because God was angry and he just needed to see some bloodshed? Is that why they were needed? No, the revelation had to be clear. And it had to be of such a nature that it would grab our attention and hold it through the ages. Let me explain to you. If someone pulls out in front of you in traffic, has that ever happened, by the way, here in Phoenix? Someone ever cut you off here in Phoenix? And let's say, instead of getting angry, you simply wave to them with all of your hand. Got it? All five fingers. You let them off the hook. Have you shown them love? Yeah. But how much love? All they did was pull out in front of you. You suffered a little bit, so you had to tap the brake. So you got to reset cruise control. Get over it. You show them that much love, but what if they would take you? Beat you when you were innocent. Leave stripes upon your back. Nail you to two pieces of wood. Stick spikes through your hands and head. Put a crown of thorns hands and feet, put a crown of thorns upon your head. And then you loved them anyways. How much love would you reveal there? You see, I believe it was part of Christ's mission to suffer as much hatred and violence at the hands of human beings as his human nature could endure. Why? Because he wanted to prove that there is nothing we can do to change his love for us. And the greater the suffering, the greater the love revealed. And he wanted to reveal as much of it as he possibly could. Follow with me. In Luke chapter 2, remember Simeon when Jesus was eight days old. When Jesus was taken to the temple to be dedicated, Simeon, a prophet there, began to prophesy. He looked into Mary's eyes. He said to Mary, a sword, Mary, one day will pierce your own soul also. Talking about the cross. And notice what the intent would be. So that the thoughts of many what? Hearts may be revealed. What was the purpose 
of Jesus' sufferings on the cross. So that the thoughts of what's in God's heart for you today would be manifest. Let's look at it. Luke 22. No. John 18. Remember there they were in the garden that evening. There's a mob that shows up. They've come to arrest Jesus. They want to take him. One of them pulls out a club and Peter pulls out a sword instead. Peter swings it. And do you know the story? Peter, it's a good thing he wasn't a good aim. Because Peter was aiming for the soldier's head. He was going to decapitate him in defense of Jesus. The man ducked and the sword glanced off his shoulder, scraped across the side of his face and actually took off his ear. Do you know the story? I know it's gruesome and gross. It's a good thing we're not at the dinner table, right? Jesus said, stop this. No more. Put your sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not what? Whom did he see what they were about to do to him is coming from? Them? Who had predetermined this and planned for this? This was according to God's plan, was it not? And why once again? To reveal what was in his heart towards us no matter what. If you skip on down further, notice Luke 22, 50 through 51. Do you see that just a few verses later? It says, and one of them struck the slave of the high priest, cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And then he stooped down, picked up the guy's ear, touched the side of his face. And what did he do with the ear? He reattached it. Now, was this a, one of the disciples that he did this to? Or was this one of the angry mob that were coming to arrest him, beat him unjustly, and crucify him? Friend or enemy? Enemy. What is Jesus doing here? That the thoughts of God's heart may be revealed. That even though you're my enemy, here, let me take care of you. Go back up to Luke 22. It says, but here at this table, we step back just a few hours. We're in the upper room. We're at the Last Supper. Sitting among us as a friend is the man who will what? Betray me. Did Jesus know who was going to betray him that night? Who did he know it was? It was Judas. And what's most interesting about this is that that night they were all arguing about who was going to be greatest, who was going to be the best, who was going to be number one. And then all of a sudden it was dead silence because in that culture when they were about to eat, it was customary that someone would come in and wash their feet. Open-toed sandals, dirt roads. It was customary, but nobody was showing up. And all the disciples are sitting around arguing who's going to be the greatest. Not one of them is going to start washing everyone else's feet. They're not going to step down to that humble position. And so what does Jesus do? I love this. What does Jesus do? Who is the greatest in that room at that night? And what does he do? He picks up a basin and a towel and he says, I'll do it. And you have to understand, when they washed feet back then, they didn't have indoor plumbing. They just poured some water in a basin. And they just went down the row. Got it? 
If the water got a little thick, they just added some more, diluted a little bit. Now, how many people were there that night? How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. By the time you get to number twelve, what's that water going to look like? Yeah, you'll never drink chocolate milk again, will you? Nasty. If you were going to show someone that they were the most important room, person in the room, what order would you wash their feet in? You'd serve them first when the water was crystal clear. Do you know whose feet Jesus washed first that night? Judas. Was it because he didn't know? He knew, didn't he? Jesus knew. But he loved Judas anyway. Do you realize that Jesus knows everything about you tonight? There's nothing you can hide from him. And yet if you were seated in that room, your feet are who he would wash first. He loves you. And how do we know that? Because look what Jesus says next. He picks up that cup that evening at the Last Supper. And he says, this is my blood. It's poured out for many for the what? For the forgiveness of sins. What was in this cup? It was forgiveness. And if you look in the next verse, it says, when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it. Eleven of you? How many does it say? All of you. Now, we're not told, but who do you think Jesus was looking at when he said, take this cup filled with forgiveness, take it and drink all of you? Who do you think he looked at? He was looking square at Judas. Judas says, maybe he doesn't know. He says, no, there's one seated here who will betray me. Judas, I do know what you're about to do to me, but it doesn't change what I feel towards you. Having loved his own, he loved them till the end. Why was he doing this? That the thoughts of God's heart may be revealed. Is that what God felt towards Judas? We go on. He's in the garden later that evening and all he wants is some companionship. He, said, he comes back to his disciples. He wants them to be praying with him. But what does he find them doing instead? Sleeping. And if I were Jesus, I would have picked up a rock and threw it at him. Dude, wake up! I'm not asking you to pull an all-night prayer vigil. Just pray with me for an hour. Man, I'm going through a hard time. I start complaining. Get grumpy. Wake up! Pray for me! It's not what Jesus did. Jesus just looks at him and love surges in his heart. And he says, I know, I know your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, when we fail, how do we usually picture God's reaction towards us? We think he's got a pretty short fuse, don't we? The next time you fall and make a mistake and you do something you think you shouldn't, I want you to remember this story right here. And I want you to imagine God looking at you saying, I know, I know. I know your heart. I know your spirit wants to do different. But the flesh is weak. What was God revealing? What was Jesus revealing? That even though you don't get it perfect all the time, I still love you. We move next 
They spat in his face. They beat him with their fists. Others slapped him. This is what Jesus was going through. And at this very moment, Peter was in the crowd at that trial. And what was Peter doing? Jesus, I'm here for you. Is that what he was doing? There was a woman standing there and said, Excuse me, sir. You're one of his disciples. I've seen you with him before. What did Peter say? I don't know him. Another person says, no, 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 we have seen you. We've seen you with him. We, you're, you're, you're one of those 12 that hang out with him. And what did he say? I don't know that guy. And I can't say what Peter says next from a pulpit. But a third person finally says, no, you are one of his disciples. And to prove that he wasn't, he began to swear and curse and deny that he was a friend of Jesus. I'm not his friend. And in that moment, what took place? In the distance, there was a rooster that began to crow. And did Peter hear that? Did Jesus hear that? And although Jesus is being spit upon, beaten, and slapped, Jesus hears the faint cry of a rooster and he remembers Peter. He remembers what was said. I've got to find Peter. And he begins to scan the crowd. And he finally finds him. And all he does, they're too far away for him to say anything. All he does is make eye contact with Peter. And what does Jesus see? What does Peter see in Jesus' eyes? You may not have the courage to say that you're my friend. But Peter, I will always be yours. That when we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot deny himself, the scriptures teach. What was Jesus doing here? Revealing the thoughts of God's heart toward us. It's interesting when Jesus was resurrected. And Mary met him at the tomb. There's only one disciple Jesus singled out. He said, go tell the disciples I've risen. But make sure you tell Peter too. Tell Peter I'm not upset. Tell Peter I still love him. Tell Peter that I've risen and I'm coming to him. What a good God, amen. Is that really what God is like? We don't have time this evening to go through all of these. But in every event of the cross, truly the thoughts of God's hearts are being, God's heart is being revealed toward us. Go all the way down to the back. Go to Isaiah 53 as we close. It says he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hid their face. 
He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, our, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of who? Whenever I hear sermons on the cross, it's always about what God did to Jesus at Calvary. Anyone ever heard one of those sermons before? We did esteem him smitten, stricken of God. But who was the one forsaking him that day? We were. Who was the one rejecting him that day? Who was the one hiding their face from him? God. It was you and it was me. And he did it. Why? That through his scourging. Notice those last few words. Through his scourging. What are the last three? We are what? What are we healed of? Our self-centered bent. We begin to encounter a love of such magnitude that it awakens in us the desire to be different. It's first Peter. Peter says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Remember. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for who? For themselves. He wants to change us. Amen. He wants to reveal life changing love. Would you like to see that love before we close today? Jesus was on the cross for six hours. How many? Six in the Gospels, those six hours are divided up into two halves. It's a natural transition because the first three, there's meticulous detail. The disciples were careful to write down what Jesus went through. But in the last three hours, the scriptures are strangely silent. Why do you think that is? See, in the first three hours, Jesus' suffering was primarily physical. And the disciples could write down, well, this is what they're doing to him right now. They're spitting in his face. They're pulling on his beard. They're mocking him. They're parting up his garments. But in the last three hours, the scriptures just go quiet. There's no description. The reason I believe that's the way it is is because there was a transition that was made. You see, in the first three hours, Jesus' suffering was primarily physical. He was feeling the nails. But during the last three hours, something happened. There was a transition that took place. His suffering became primarily psychological and emotional to the extent that that torment almost wholly eclipsed what he was suffering in those first three hours. Now, don't get me wrong, did his physical suffering continue? But what intensified? Is there anyone here that's ever done anything wrong? Anyone here? When you've done something wrong, what does it create in you psychologically and emotionally? Guilt? Torment? Stress? Distress? Shame? Isolation? When Jesus took your mistakes upon him, do you think they made him feel the same way? 
You see, as those three last three hours progressed, all we have a hint of in the Gospels of what he went through was at the very end, the silence of those three hours becomes broken as the God of this universe cries out, My God, my God, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you abandoned me? All my life I have cried out to you and you have answered, where are you when I need you the most? God, why? What have I done? Where are you? Was he feeling isolated? Feeling alone? Abandoned and rejected? Have you ever felt far away from God? Your sins that are making you feel that way made him feel that way too. The scriptures don't give us in those four gospels what happened in his head that led him from the first three hours. It's quite amazing. In the first three hours, he looks over at a thief and says, hey, you'll be with me where? In paradise. The first three hours, Jesus saw himself when all the dust settled, when all of this was said and done, Jesus saw himself as ending up where? When it, when it was all ended, where would he be? He would be in paradise, in heaven. And the thief would be there with him. But notice something happened from the time he said that to that thief to the time he cries out in abandonment. Would you like to know what did happen in his head? There is one place in scripture where we do see it. Look at Psalms 88. Psalms 88 is a messianic psalm. That's a huge theological term that you don't ever need to remember. Okay? The only reason I bring it up is so that you'd understand some of the Psalms don't just talk about what the author of that Psalm was going through. They are also prophetic of what the Messiah would go through when he came. Psalms 88 is one of those messianic Psalms. It says, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. Was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? He says, I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead. Did Jesus feel forsaken by God? And then he says, like the slain who lie in the grave. And this is what I want to zero in on. What is this next phrase? Whom you remember no more. What does that mean? What does that mean? I always thought when Jesus died for me, he died knowing he would be what? Resurrected. I mean, he died and he knew in three days he would be resurrected. I mean, didn't he say it to the thief? You'll be with me in paradise? But something happened in those final three hours. The sense of our sin became so intense. That at the final end, he cries out, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I feel like I'm dying. And you're never going to remember me again. Jesus began to feel as if this is not just a bad weekend. I'm dying and I'm never coming back. In those moments, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He didn't see himself coming forth from the grave of conqueror. Satan pressed close to the heart of God. Do you believe the devil was present at Calvary? The devil pressed close to the heart of Jesus. And he said, Jesus, if you do this, don't you understand? Sin is so hateful to a holy God. This is going to separate you from him forever. 
Now, have you ever noticed how when Satan lies to us, he always mixes in a little bit of truth with the lie? Anyone ever noticed that? Is it true that God hates sin? Yes. Don't ever forget, God hates sin with a hatred as strong as death. But the part that Satan left out and the part that is even more needful to remember is that although God hates sin with a hatred as strong as death, he loves you as the sinner with a love that is stronger than death. Amen? He cares more about you than your behavior. Amen? He wants your heart. He doesn't care where you've been. He only cares where you're going. Amen. How many are thankful for that? But Satan lied. God hates it so much. This is going to separate the two of you for eternity. And then Satan brought up the glories of heaven. The adoration of the angels. That reuniting embrace with his father. And he took every single one of them. The reuniting embrace with his father. You're never going to have that, Jesus. If you die for Herb Montgomery, you're never going to have that. You're, if you die, you aren't coming back. Number two, all the glories of heaven. You really want to give up those, Jesus? And then you know what's the most painful for me? I believe that Satan took all the adoration of the angels. And he compared them to how many times... I would fail to give him the adoration he deserves. And Satan said, are you really going to trade that for that? And then Satan began to whisper. Do you remember the two words that were said over and over to Jesus that day? The soldiers had said it. The Pharisees had said it. The people had said it. If you're the Messiah, then what? Save yourself. He began to whisper. You cannot save Herb. And save yourself too. You will either save Herb at an infinite loss to yourself. Or you will save yourself at an infinite loss to Herb. But you can't pull off both, Jesus. Save yourself. Save yourself. Do it, Jesus. Goodbye to life forever. Save yourself, Jesus. He's not worth it. And he took those three things and he paraded them one last time. And do you know why I'm a Christian today? Do you know why I follow God? This is my testimony. Do you know why I spend countless weeks out of every year away from my family so that other folks could taste of our Heavenly Father's love? Because my God, in those final moments when he could have saved himself, he looked at all the glories of heaven. And then he looked at me. And when he looked at me, as glorious as heaven is, it paled in comparison. And he said, heaven's not a place that I desire to be. If he can't be there. And when faced with eternal loss to himself. Or eternal ruin for me. Do you know why I love God?
Because my God said, I will save Herb at any cost to myself. And he bowed his head and he died. And I have friends that say, Herb, they're not Christians. They don't see things the way I do. I don't care. I don't just like Christians. I love everybody. Well, not, maybe not everybody. That's a huge thing to say. But I love all types of people. I can say that. And my friends, my good friends who aren't Christians, they'll say, Herb, what if it's all a waste? What if you get down to the end and there is no heaven and there is no hell? You know what I say to them? With all due respect, I don't give a rip. Do you know why? Because even if there is no heaven, even if there is no hell, even if there is no reward for me or no great punishment at the end, even if I get nothing in return, even if there's nothing in it for me, my God lived for me when he thought there was no heaven in it for him. And if that's really what he's like, if that's the name of God, if that's the truth about what kind of a being he is, I have never been loved like that before. I have never met anyone who have, who have loved me so much to give up their place in heaven for me. I have never encountered that in any other person ever. And I say if he's really that, if he loves me that much, and if he's willing to give up his spot for me, if he's really that beautiful, then I want to serve him. I want to worship him. I want to love him back. He is simply worthy of my service every waking moment of my life, even if I get nothing in return. I ask you tonight as we close, is there anyone here? I know some of you are visitors. Nobody's looking Is there anybody here tonight who would have the courage to admit that as we looked at the cross tonight, you felt something inside of you? Is there anybody here? Would you have the courage to say to me tonight what it was you felt? In one word, love. What is it? Gratitude. How many want to say to God, thank you? Awe. Anybody here feel awe? Anything else? I feel unworthy, amen? I don't know about you, but when I look at the cross, I think, God, give up heaven for someone else, but don't do that for me. I'm not worth it. I can't love you like that, God. I'm not worth it. I've made too many mistakes, God. But do you know what he says? He says, I didn't do it because you were worth it. He said, I did it because I loved you. And you can't change that. How many are thankful for a God who loves us like that? Remember, why did he die for you? So that something would be awoken in you. A little four letter word. Do you remember what it was? 
love. Does anyone here feel loved by God tonight? Is there anybody here tonight who feels the miracle of love being awoken in your heart back to God? Anybody here feel that you love God tonight? Is there anybody here tonight, and I don't care what your past is, I don't care where you've been, I don't care where you're coming from tonight. Is there anybody here tonight, whether you've made a decision before to accept Jesus as your Savior, or whether you've never done it before, regardless of which one applies to you, how many would like to say tonight one of two things, Lord, I want to reaffirm my acceptance of you as my Savior, or Jesus, I want to accept you as my Savior for the very first time. Either one of those. How many would like to just say, God, I love you back tonight? Teach me to love you. I want to live for you and not me anymore. I tell you what, you'll never be happier. There's nothing like living for that guy. He is the most loving, beautiful, generous being in the universe. And a love affair with him is far worth more than anything else you have ever encountered. God bless you. Thank you for having me this weekend. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father. Lord, as we close, I want to thank you so much for the way you love us. And Lord, I will never understand why. But tonight I'm just thankful that you do. Lord, you've seen the decisions that were made here tonight. We want this to continue, Lord. We want this to be the beginning of something different, something new. Father, may we truly enter into that great transformation where we learn to love as we are loved. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Before anyone says anything or anyone goes anywhere, how many would like what you experienced this evening? To become a more consistent reality in your Christian experience. Or in just your life, whether you're a Christian or not. I have a sign-up sheet up here. If you would like some of the materials from our ministry, please feel free to do so. If you don't want to sign up, that's cool. Go on our website and take advantage of them yourself. And if I don't see you again on this, on this earth, I pray I see you again in the kingdom. God bless you.